highest heaven, glorify your name through me. I hope that is the cry of your heart, your desire, that the Lord would be glorified through you, whatever that may look like. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is the cry of our hearts that you would be glorified. Be glorified in my life. For to me to live is Christ. Heavenly Father, may that be true of each and every one of us. We pray that if there is any sin in our hearts, that you would rip it out. That we would not be led astray. That we would not so easily fall, but that we would find our hope, our life, in you and in you alone. Heavenly Father, we pray that even as we look at this passage this evening, may we be challenged as our eyes are open to the seriousness of sin, the reality of your justice. May we be called to take seriously the call to guard the gospel and to proclaim it with clarity. We pray that you'd be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I just finished an excellent book by Garrett Graff. It was called The Only Plane in the Sky. In fact, I, I, it was a book I was listening to on audiobook, and I finished it yesterday as I was um, getting the snow out of my driveway. Uh, as I was working, I was listening away. The Only Plane in the Sky tells the story of 9-11, but it does it from the perspective of those who were there. It is the personal testimony of first responders, of reporters, of airline workers, of family members. It's a very personal and intimate look at it. In fact, near the, the end of the book, one of the people who talks is the guy, uh, one of the security people at the airport, who's the one who checked in the ter- one of the terrorists. And he was struggling, how, he was explaining how he struggles with that. How every time 9-11 comes by, he, he, he doesn't feel like he should have part in it because he played that role in it. He didn't know, obviously, it's not his fault. But it's, it's a very intimate look. Many of you probably remember that day. And part of the shock of that day was not simply the fact that that we had been attacked. We didn't see it coming. It came out of nowhere. But, But part of what made it so shocking is that we had been infiltrated. Our enemy did not attack us from abroad, but from within. In fact, in the book, some of the fighter pilots were talking about how that was part of the confusion of the day, of trying to figure out what was going on. They had never trained for an attack that would come from within. They had trained to to launch out into the ocean, to to intercept planes or missiles that were coming from across the ocean. Not planes that were coming from within our own borders. I think the same is true of the church. We are well aware of the dangers that face us from the outside. Perhaps the greatest danger is not that our message would be silenced from without, but that our message would be twisted from within. That is the danger as we turn our attention to to the book of Jude, this little tiny book near the end of the New Testament, right before Revelation. In fact, last week we began our short study through the book of Jude. And we were introduced to Jude and to this letter, and, and we saw that Jude is the brother of Jesus. And he's writing to believers 
And his purpose is to exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith. Because it's under attack. It's under attack from godly men who have crept in. The book of Jude is a call to arms for a church that is under attack. And this evening, Jude calls his readers to wake up and recognize the seriousness of sin and the surety of judgment. Take these wicked men, this call to war, take it seriously. Because there is a lot at stake. This is not something to be trifled with. So I just have two points this evening. A brief history of apostasy in verses 5 to 7. And then the real danger of apostasy in verses 8 to 10. First thing we see in the first few verses, starting in verse 5, is a brief history of apostasy. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, As you start out here, Jude points back to the context of verse 4. He's coming straight out of verse 4. These wicked men, certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These wicked men who are sensual and faithless. It is these wicked men who twist the truth to satisfy their carnal desires. With that context of this danger, and he goes on to tell them, this is something I want to remind you of, but something that you once knew. Jude here is not condemning them for not knowing this. You Guys, you should know this, right? We're working through that in, in Hebrews. It's a passage where, where the author of Hebrews is grabbing his audience by the shoulders, and he is kind of condemning them. He's calling them out. You should know this. That's not what's going on here. Jude's not saying you should know this, but you, know, but you don't. Rather, he's simply stressing something that they are already well aware of. I, I know you know this, but I just I want to remind you. Because you need to focus on this. He goes on to give three examples of apostasy. Apostasy is defined in the dictionary as an act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. It is to leave what you once believed or what you once claimed. In terms of how it is used here in Jude, it's not just to leave uh, any old religion, but to abandon the truth. That's what Jude is dealing with. Jude is dealing with the truth. And so to apostatize from the word of God, to apostatize from the Christian faith, is to deny the truth. To abandon the truth. So he gives three examples here of apostasy from history. The first, we see, is the Exodus. It's a story that we know well. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew this, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, that might catch your attention there. In the ESV, it says Jesus. In uh, the New King James, other versions, it says the Lord. Um, there's um, Some think that it was Jesus himself in pre-incarnate form that, that led the people out, uh, that Jesus was involved in that um, 
it, it seems from what I've studied shortly in this week, uh, I'm no expert, but it seems that the better idea here is just the Lord in general. God did this. Uh, so Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Like I said, we know this story well. We've walked through it several times. God, who delivered his people from Egypt, he led them out of Egypt. And then he provided for them greatly as they leave Egypt. He leads them to the Red Sea. He leads them across the Red Sea. He delivers them from Pharaoh's armies as the, as the Red Sea itself comes down on top of them. Not only does he lead them to the sea and across the sea, but he leads them across the wilderness. He provided food and he provided water for them. He led them himself in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God delivered them. And after crossing this wilderness, after everything that they have seen and experienced, they get to the edge of the land. This land that has been promised to them, and as they stand there and, and, and they're about to go into it, what happens? They fail to enter the land. Why? Because they failed to believe. Because, as Jude uses that as an example here, they apostatized. They chose not to believe what they had once believed. They believed that God could lead them out of Egypt and could lead them to the promised land until they got to the promised land. Then they chose not to believe it. It's kind of shocking for us to back up and to put that whole story of Exodus in the context of apostasy. That's what exactly what Jude is doing here. And the context, the, the, the lesson here is clear. Don't think that because God has de decisively rescued you from your sins that you can presume on his grace and mercy. Don't think that just because God saved you that, that now you can do what you want. In fact, that's exactly what these false teachers were doing. They had twisted God's grace to satisfy their fleshly desires. Paul addressed this very issue in Romans 6, verses 1 to 4, where he anticipates those who would try to make this argument. And he says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many, as, us, uh, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the argument that, that is being made here. That's what, what these false teachers, these, um, though, th these wicked men, that's what they're saying. You've experienced God's grace. Now go on and sin that grace may abound. Do what you want. Satisfy your desires. Here Jude looks back to this example from the Old Testament, the Exodus. He goes on to another example. 
the angels, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It's likely a reference back to Genesis 6, verses 1 to 3. It's a very interesting passage. If you ever went to, to Bible college, it's one of those passages that was probably debated in your Bible college dorm room. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 3. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives, and, and, took, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were great on the earth in those days, and as afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. See, as you come to Jude, he's referencing back to Genesis 6 here, where some angels, these sons of God, that, that term, sons of God, almost every other time it appears in Scripture is referring to angels. You see it in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7. These angels leave their natural place and purpose in order to have sexual relations with humans. And it is a perversion. They apostatize. They leave where they were and what was right and what God had planned for them, and they leave that and they go after their own desires. There's another example. In verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sexual immorality, that which is unnatural. Again, what is in view here is a sexual perversion. It is homosexuality. It is the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who left their natural, their natural desires, what God had planned, what God intended. They left that to pursue unnatural desires. Homosexuality in this story. It's apostasy to leave what is true, what God intended to pursue. What is not true, to deny it, to say that I know better. Now before we move on, I want to point something out. It's about each one of these examples of apostasy that Jude gives. And each one has a consequence. There's a consequence for denying the truth. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, verse 5, Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It's a strong word there. He destroyed them. There's a consequence to that. They denied the truth. They did not obtain the prize. They were destroyed. 
He goes on, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He has kept them in change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The last day when they will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. God did not brush over their sin, their rebellion. He did not sweep it aside. He dealt with it. There was a consequence for their apostasy. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. They were condemned for their sin. And Jude says they serve as an example, guys. Look and see. God takes sin seriously. There's a consequence to those who deny him, who turn their back on the truth. And that's really where this passage is kind of shocking. Because up until this point, he's gone over a brief history, these three examples, and, and they're well-known examples. Especially to this Jewish audience to which he's writing, these believers, they would have known these examples from the Old Testament. And these are the really bad examples. Right? I'm sure their parents would have costly been saying, you're no better than, than those people in Exodus who didn't believe. And that's like, oh, man, that, that is a big deal. The angels, that, that is a big deal. Sodom and Gomorrah, that is a, those are the really, really bad people. And where this gets shocking now is Jude takes those three examples. And now he turns it around. Verse 8. Yet, or, or likewise, Jude now takes the actions of these ungodly men that he referenced in the first four verses, these ungodly men who've crept into these churches, he takes them and he puts them and their action in the context of these well-known examples of apostasy. Just like all those that you know, likewise are these. Yet, in like manner, these people, relying on their dreams, they are dreamers, the New King James says. Likely it's a reference to the fact that, that, that probably what these men did, some, maybe how they grabbed a foothold, was they come in and, and, and they would speak from, from, God told me this in a dream. They get their authority. And they rely on subjective experience, supposed dreams or visions, rather than on the objective truth of God's word. And they are dreamers. They are not seeing clearly. What do these dreamers do? Well, just like there were three examples, so now there's three specific sins with which he charges them. First, they defile the flesh or to pollute their own bodies. Just like the angels of Genesis 6 who left their proper station to pursue base desires, 
Just like the men of Genesis 19 who left their unnatural desires to pursue the perversion of homosexuality, so these wicked men who have infiltrated the church are wholly given over to their perverse sexual practices. They have no regard for God or his word. They have no regard for the truth. They do what they want to do. They defile the flesh. They pollute their own bodies. Secondly, they reject authority. They reject authority. Specifically, God's authority. They are not willing to put themselves under the authority of God. They're unwilling to submit themselves to God. They're no different than the Israelites who though delivered from Egypt, never really submitted to or believed God, who did not take possession of the land because of it. They're just like the angels of Genesis 6, who were unwilling to submit themselves to God's purpose and plan for them, but rebelled against them in pursuit of pleasure. And they are the exact same as the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who did not submit to God's purposes but rejected the natural order of things and rebellion against God. It is not a light thing to reject the authority of God. To refuse to submit yourself to Him. It is a sin that leads to hell. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries, as the New King James says. The ESV uh, says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Another uh, translation I looked at said they heap abuse on celestial beings. The idea here is a lack of respect for the spiritual world, specifically for demons or for wicked angels. Just like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who did not have a healthy fear of the angels who were there, but they wanted to take them, they wanted to abuse them, and they didn't even know what it was they were doing. But, but so these men have no respect for the power and the danger of demons of the spiritual world. Peter gives a little context to this in 2 Peter 2, verses 10 to 11. He says something very similar. In fact, we'll start back in verse 10, 2 Peter 2, 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce, pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. In fact, Jude goes on to explain this by giving an example here in verse 9. But when the archangel, Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to mount to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Verse 9 there is kind of an odd verse. It's one of those verses that, that kind of catches us like, what? In the context, it's clear that it's referring back to that last thing there in the group of three to blaspheme the glorious ones. 
What he's doing here is Jude is telling a story from the pseudepigraphal book of the Testament of Moses. It is not a book of the Bible. This is a specific instance actually is not recorded elsewhere in Scripture. We do have other examples in the Bible of Michael fighting Satan in order to do God's bidding. When God sends Michael out to do something, we, we see examples of him fighting against Satan. In fact, we just saw one recently in Daniel uh, 10, verse 13, even when we were working our way through the book of Daniel, where this angel trying to get to, to Daniel is uh, held up. And then Michael comes to fight so that he can go. There's a very, very fim, fim, there's a very similar story to this one in Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 2, where the angel of the Lord contends with the devil, and Joshua is there. It's kind of an odd thing that's going on here. But Jude here is making a point. There's a reason that he includes this here. This would have been a well-known story among Jude's first century Jewish audience. They would have understood his point immediately. And what he's getting at here is simply the fact that, that these false teachers, these wicked men who've crept in, they say that they understand this and they are leading you astray. They don't even understand what they are going up against. They have no regard for these evil angels, for these demons and for their power. Look at Michael himself, the archangel, who Michael, when he had an opportunity, when he was fighting against Satan, even he did not blaspheme him. Even he referred to the authority of God. The Lord rebuke you. And yet these men, who are nothing compared to Michael, these men... Take lightly. This is not something to be taken lightly. And why is it that they take it so lightly? It's because they don't understand it. They are ignorant. In fact, that's where he goes next. As you, as you go to the next verse there. Verse 10. The end of apostasy. Where is it that this leads? But these people... These people, these dreamers, as he said in verse 8, who defile the flesh, who reject authority, who blaspheme the glorious ones. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They are foolish. They are foolish. MacArthur puts it this way, he says, Apostate teachers in their brash, bold, egotistical infatuation with imagined powers and authority rail against that, uh, rail against what they don't even understand. They are intellectually arrogant and spiritually ignorant and that they don't know because they are blinded by Satan and spiritual matters are beyond their unregenerate capacity to understand. They are foolish. They are ignorant. They are corrupt. They are driven by their desires rather than the pursuit of truth. Like a dumb beast, an unreasoning animal. 
in their fallen nature. They are driven by lusts without knowledge. And their end is destruction. And they will face judgment. Just as God did not overlook the sin of his people, Israel, as he brought them out of Egypt, just as he did not overlook the sin of the angels who rebelled against the station that he had given them, just as Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against the natural order of things and God's word, just as they all faced condemnation, so will these leaders face condemnation. Jude's message here this, this evening is a call to war. He's building on the foundation that he laid in those first four verses. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we are up against. And this is their end. Don't be dragged along with them. Don't be tempted with them. Don't be blinded by them. Look at how foolish they are and look what their end is. Fight against their apostasy. Guard the truth. In fact, as we come to the end of this passage, kind of an odd passage with some of the things that are included in there. Like Jude, I would plead with you to guard the truth. As a church, we must guard this pulpit. We must guard the doctrine of this church. We must not stray even a little bit. But brothers and sisters, we must also guard our own hearts and minds. Don't just think corporately. Think personally. We live in an amazing time where we are blessed with the opportunity and we have limitless access to preaching and to teaching. You can get out your phone, you can go to any pod, to go to pod, pull out of a podcast, and you can listen to messages from all over the world. But brothers and sisters, guard your hearts and your ears. Be wise, be careful in what you listen to. The same goes for music. Music. The music that we listen to, it, it, it proclaims truth. Specifically, I'm speaking of, of Christian music, of, of worship music. It proclaims truth, and yet, yet how many just listen to what is, what is easy to listen to, what is fun to listen to, without paying any attention to the message that they are listening to, that is going into their ears and their minds. We wonder why the next generation is not rising up, why they are leaving the church. It's because their theology did not come from the word of God, but from the music they listened to. It's because the church failed to sit down and to disciple them, to love them, to tell them what the Bible says. Guard the truth. 
Guard what goes into your ears. Guard what you meditate on. Because sin is serious and truth matters. And because God will not overlook or downplay sin, we cannot afford to get it wrong. We must stand on the truth and we must not waver. Because the consequences are eternal. We're going to close this evening with a song. Uh, oh Great God, number 76, a song that we just sang before we came to the message. Oh Great God. I want to specifically focus on that last verse. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Keep my heart and guard my soul. May we be a people that zealously, zealously guard our ears and our hearts. That the Lord may be honored all that we say and do. Let's stand and sing number 76, O Great God.